Welcome into Shat Talk, the People's Sports Talk Podcast, with your host, Bradley Shatra. And we are back with Shat Talk. This is episode 37. It is 1.20 in the afternoon on Thursday, September 17th, and I am your host, Bradley Shatra. And since I last talked with you guys, there has been some crazy things going on in the sports world. We saw week one of the NFL. That was very interesting. I believe the last time I spoke on the actual podcast, I do videos every day. But the last time I spoke on the podcast, I think the only thing we had seen was the Chiefs and the Texans in the first Thursday night football of the season. But we had our first Sunday, so I will get into some of that and prep for this weekend. Uh, The Browns and Bengals have a game tonight that just became a huge one after the Browns' first performance of the season. So we got a packed show. We got a packed show today, but I wanted to start with the Los Angeles Clippers. I talked on my last show about how amazing they were at flipping a switch and how streaky they were. And it seemed as though when everybody got on the same page and everyone was engaged, the Clippers were unbeatable. That's how it felt because they went on these runs at points in their season and at certain points in games where if you were watching the game – you were sitting on your couch like, this is this is ridiculous. But what I failed to realize was that they did not respond to adversity well. They were good at causing adversity for another team. But they themselves were not good at overcoming adversity when it was thrown their way. I was dead, dead wrong about the Los Angeles Clippers. I said they were the best team in the league. I said the Lakers had the better duo in the league. Now, do not get me wrong in any shape or fashion. I was picking the Lakers in seven in a Lakers-Clippers Western Conference Finals. That was always going to happen because the king is still the king. And I don't care if your team is better. I think LeBron would have beat the Clippers. But you know what? It's not his fault that he doesn't have to play the Clippers. They did not hold up their end of the deal. And that is not anybody else's problem besides their own. My tune started to change when they suffered a shocking loss in game six. They blew a 19-point lead. And it started to just become very apparent that they were tempting fate. It was Jokic and Murray's fourth consecutive series that went to a game seven, and the last one was a 3-1 comeback. So they were not new to this. They have been here and done that. Doc Rivers before that series had already blown 2-1-2-3-1 series leads before in his coaching career. The Clippers had lost all momentum. The Nuggets had nothing to lose. The Clips had everything to lose. And allowing that game to go to a one-winner-take-all is just flat-out not a guarantee for the Clippers. In fact, I think it might have been worst-case scenario. 
for the Clippers to end up in a winner-take-all game, they're just not consistent enough for that, and they haven't been. They're streaky, and they were able to flip a switch when they wanted to most of the time. But they didn't know what they were getting from Lou Will in the bubble. He was inconsistent. You never know what you're getting with Marcus Morris if it's in the bubble or if there's fans there, no matter what. Marcus Morris is a good player, but he is inconsistent. And for Paul George, we all know the struggles he went through in the bubble. He was up and down. He had some great nights and he had some awful nights. The Clippers putting themselves in a situation where it was win or go home. One game and that was it was a horrible, horrible recipe for them. Everything pointed to the Clippers losing game seven. But to me, I had believed all season that they were the better overall team and I believed in Kawhi. So I thought, you know what? At some point, they are going to get this going in game seven and they are going to put this away because I couldn't fathom a situation where the Clippers didn't make it. But I was incredibly, totally wrong. I just... I continuously mentioned how streaky they were, how they could turn that switch on, and it came back to bite me. The Clippers played me and the entire NBA for a fool. What an incredibly terrible choke job by these Los Angeles Clippers. They had a 14-point lead in Game 5. They had a 19-point lead in Game 6. And while it may not be all that much, in the fourth quarter of Game 7, the Clippers had a 7-point lead. But every single time the Nuggets swung back, it seemed as though the Clippers didn't have an answer. They could throw that first punch, and it would be a hard one. But if they got knocked back in the face, they never truly responded. Kawhi only had 14 points last night, and he had zero in the fourth quarter. Not last night, two nights ago. Zero in the fourth quarter. After game six, like I said, it had started to become apparent that the streakiness and the talent level of the Clippers was not going to be the thing that was able to make them win games. I went against all the signs and still chose them, like I just said a little bit earlier. And I have to give credit to the Denver Nuggets. I really do. But the Clippers flat out choked. And I was very, very wrong about them. And there's been some interesting talks since this has all gone down. I've heard some rumors Should they move so-and-so? Should they move Doc Rivers? I don't think they should move Doc Rivers. I think that would be an overreaction. I think that the Clippers were way too loud this season. I think they acted like they had already won. I think that in their minds, they knew how talented of an overall team that they were, and they didn't see any situation where they were going to lose So they acted like they pretty much had already won. And some people are into that. I am not. It rubs me a little bit wrong how particularly loud they were, but I gave them a chance. 
you know, prove it. And if they made the championship, if they won the championship, it would validate all of that talk by Los Angeles. But they played me for a fool. I I don't know what else to say. They, they tricked me. The Los Angeles Clippers tricked me. And I fell for it. I really did. I don't think the Clippers should panic and blow this thing up or trade one of their stars or get rid of their coach like I just said. I just think they need to run it back. Same guys, same core. Try to get more games healthy together as a full team. I understand that load management is a thing now. I've defended the guys that do it because they know their body and they want to be fresh for the playoffs. But maybe there should be a little bit more of sense of urgency in the Clippers team or organization next year. But they have to eat this one. They have to accept it. They'll always know that they deprived NBA fans of the Battle of LA by not holding up their end of the deal. It seemed as though they got the easier path too, which is even worse about this situation. The Mavs were good, but I don't think anybody expected the Nuggets to be a harder opponent than the Houston Rockets. Maybe some did, and I would give somebody credit if they said they did. I definitely did not. But the Los Angeles Clippers, they blew it. Moving on to my next topic, the Cleveland Browns, who were without a doubt the letdown of week one. And if you've listened to this podcast, you know that I have defended the Browns and I've had some pretty solid expectations for this upcoming season. Baker never had time to throw the ball in his or in last year. Every time I watched the Browns game, the pocket either collapsed or Baker was running before the pocket even collapsed because he knew it was inevitably coming. The O line was terrible. But Cleveland went out and they addressed it this offseason. They drafted Jedrick Wills. They signed Jack Conklin, one of the best offensive linemen in the NFL. But it did not look like that in week one. Baker spread the ball around, but the accuracy was not there. 52% completion percentage. Odell Beckham Jr., we will get to him later, had only three receptions for 22 yards. Their defense was shorthanded, but they could not stop anything that the Ravens threw at them. Lamar Jackson was incredible for Baltimore. He was, and he's always going to be. But that was to be expected. I want to take this with a grain of salt. I want to take their week one with a grain of salt. Since Cleveland did play Baltimore, who is one of the best two-way teams in the NFL, if not the best two-way team in the NFL, their defense is incredible, their offense is incredible. But it was apparent very apparent that the Browns were not ready. There is no more excuses for this team. They better turn this around fast or else this could start to become very bad, very, very fast. 
And we've already seen the week one ramifications of being that bad. Rumors are already swirling that Odell Beckham Jr. is on the trade block. And it's starting to drive me crazy because for the last four years, even when he was a giant, as soon as his team struggles, these talks have started. The Browns and Baker and even OBJ were not good in week one. I've already established that. But we have to acknowledge the team they played because it's not an excuse. It's just a fact. It is not time to panic yet. And I do not buy these rumors for a second. Until the Browns are 1-4, and 1-5, and five, and their season is essentially over, I don't see the Browns panicking this early. They brought in Austin Hooper in this offseason as well. They have a solid dual threat backfield. Their secondary was not healthy in week one. But the reason that the secondary not being healthy in week one doesn't really comfort anyone is because the offense is what looked so bad for Cleveland. I'm going to give Cleveland some time because a week one loss to one of the best teams in the NFL does not mean they are in trouble just yet. But. I will say, if Baker and the Browns cannot get this together and they don't get it together fairly soon, my tune is absolutely going to change. Because Baker Mayfield is playing with fire right now. The Browns addressed his needs. They went all in on him. They kept everyone. They ran this thing back from last year. It was a miserable failure last year. But, like I just said, there were things to address. There was fixes that need to be made. And that front office went out and they addressed those needs and made those fixes. So there is no more excuse for Baker Mayfield. It is on him. We saw him play well in that rookie season when he came in in the second half of the year and and played well for Cleveland. But they need that guy back. They have way too many weapons on offense to not start to think, maybe this isn't the right guy for us. When you have Austin Hooper, Odo Beckham Jr., Jarvis Landry, Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt, it it ain't on nobody else but the leader. Baker Mayfield needs to step up. The Browns play the Bengals tonight. They play Joe Burrow and the Bengals. The Bengals had the number one pick because they were the worst team in the NFL last year. If Baker cannot get a win tonight, that seat's going to get even hotter. He's playing with fire and he needs a win tonight to show that there's at least some hope. So the Dallas Cowboys underwhelmed in week one. They struggled to defend screen passes that the Rams were pretty much consistently throwing at them. They 
didn't take advantage of the opportunities that they were given when they got a clutch interception and could not convert that into points. Mike McCarthy made a disgusting decision in the fourth quarter, in my opinion at least. I'm sure there's football guys out there that want to show off how smart they are and defend his decision. But Dallas underwhelmed. And no, they did not lose that game because the ref called an offensive pass interference on Michael Gallup. I understand that would have put them in field goal range. But Dallas had so many problems before that play that to blame that game on the refs, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Nobody hates the ref excuse more than me. Nobody. Because it implies that everything that you did before that didn't cause you or put you in a position to get screwed by a call. I'm not saying that it's right. I'm not saying that refs don't mess up. But what I am saying is that you should play well enough to not even have to be in that situation. But the Dallas Cowboys did not, and a call did not go their way, and they lost that game 20-17. to But what I was talking about in the fourth quarter was, with about 11 minutes left, Dallas was down 20-17. to And they had a fourth and three situation, and it would have been an easy field goal. But Mike McCarthy went for it. And maybe he was just trying to be aggressive because it's week one. Maybe he was already going for it, which it seemed as though he was no matter what after third down. I don't know what explanation somebody would have. And I'm sure somebody would love to show off why they think that it was a good decision. But there's no defending not taking the points there. Seems to me like Mike McCarthy outcoached himself. There is no reason to not take the points and tie that game at 20. Changes the entire complexion of the game. You're now tied. You're not playing from behind the entire fourth quarter like they ended up having to do. It was a horrible decision. It was a bad start for Mike McCarthy. And I'm just hoping that it doesn't become a habit. Now, after week one, Dallas will be without Leighton Van Der Esch, their middle linebacker who has been a star and pretty much the leader of their defense. He will be out for six to eight weeks with a collarbone injury. Sean Lee, their other middle linebacker who is a defensive leader, will not be back until mid-October. And tight end Blake Jarwin is out for the season with a knee injury. And, I mean, there's just no way around it. What a horrible start for the Cowboys, who had a tough week one. Jalen Smith and Alden Smith are going to have to step up for the Cowboys. From what I've gathered, middle linebacker Joe Thomas will step in for Lee and Vanderesh. Dalton Schultz will take over for Blake Jarwin, who really did have a chance to break out this year after impressing last year behind Jason Witten. The Cowboys plain and simple have to find a way to have the next man up mentality and adjust to this. They still have their big four on offense, and their defense is still damn good, even without Vanderesh. This Sunday, they play the Falcons, who aired it out in week one. Matt Ryan had 54 passing attempts, 450 passing yards, three receivers on their team had over 100 yards. Now, the Falcons did still take the loss to Seattle, but it shows you. 
They're most likely going to air it out, and they're going to challenge Dallas's defense. Mike McCarthy said, quote, the honeymoon is over. But hell, I didn't even know it started. If he cannot get a win in week two, Dallas is going down a bad path because they have Seattle week three. This Atlanta Falcons game just became huge for the Dallas Cowboys and Mike McCarthy and Dak Prescott. There are so many people that have so much to lose this season for Dallas, and it didn't necessarily look that way in week one. I don't want to judge off of week one because that's another one of my pet peeves is overreactions after week one in the NFL like we saw with Tom Brady and the Bucks. I will get there. But the Cowboys are in a situation where they have to show some fight of adversity. They they have to come back from this because an 0-3 start to this season would put them in a hell of a spot. I'm not sure what adjustments they've they're going to necessarily make, but they have to win this Atlanta game and Dak Prescott has to come out and show more of an ability to convert on third downs. We'll see if they can get this win because if they can't I don't even know if Mike McCarthy's going to know at all what a honeymoon stage even feels like. Moving on to the New England Patriots, who might I say looked pretty damn good in their week one victory. Now, first, their offense did look a little bit different as it should. The run pass option was working well for them. They let Cam use his legs. Now, there was obviously some similarities because it is still the relatively same offense ran in New England, but there was some adjustments made with Cam that really did look pretty darn good. Um, Their defense played well despite the opt-outs, so that was definitely a concern on my part. I talked about before the season how I thought they might struggle due to the fact that now they have opt-outs on top of Cam Newton coming in with not necessarily overwhelmingly flashy options. Uh, Their defense did have three interceptions, which does lead me to one thing about Miami that I noticed was, why are they doing this charade with Ryan Fitzpatrick? Start Tua Tagovailoa. Now, I understand maybe not wanting to have Tua face Bill in the Pats week one, but it would have looked better than Fitz yesterday. And even if it didn't, let him get his mistakes out. He's a rookie. He's supposed to make mistakes. It just did not make much sense to me what the Dolphins necessarily have to gain out of having Fitzpatrick out there. He was not very good. I'm sure he'll have his three, four weeks this year where he goes off, but that will be pretty much the only thing that Miami gets. Uh, He did play well at the end of last season, and I get that part of it, but it's just like, Like I said, what are they gaining from having Fitzpatrick out there? Uh, But overall, the Pats really impressed me. They are going to need more production from their wide receivers as Cam did have to do a good amount uh, with his legs. He had a very impressive touchdown with his legs. But there were some issues. I mean, you had Edelman who had a easy drop 
Uh, Cam did only throw 19 times. You also had Mikhail Harry who had the fumble that resulted in a touchback. He fumbled in the end zone. So the game was a solid sign for the Patriots. And I'm thinking I might have been wrong before this season. I'm going to backtrack after week one. I don't necessarily think it's an overreaction just because of what I saw and my expectations. I definitely was pretty darn impressed, and I think the Pats might have a big year. I'm not saying that they're going to win the Super Bowl. I'm not even necessarily saying they will make it to the playoffs, but I do think that they are going to have a solid year after my expectations originally were that it was going to be a tough year for them. So they have a big test with the Seattle Seahawks on Sunday night football this week, so we will see what they look like against a legit defense like that and a legit offense. Another great two-way team. So that should be interesting. I'm sure that Seattle's probably going to try and force Cam to throw the ball a little bit more than he did in week one. So that should be interesting. I'm curious to see if Edelman is his guy, if Harry is his guy, who he chooses to be his favorite target. I'm assuming it'll be Edelman, but we will see. And now that we got the Patriots in there, let's talk about Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Bucks. Now they lost 34 to 23 to the New Orleans Saints in week one. And this was awarded the biggest overreaction of the week. Everyone thinks Tom Brady made a bad choice and that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are not that good. Well, I have some news for you. It's week one. Brady was pretty good, and he had two touchdowns. Now, he also did have two interceptions. One was all on him. The other did look like there was some miscommunication on a route from him and Mike Evans. Now, some people say that Evans was running the, the correct route and Brady read it wrong. Um, Brady definitely looked like his reaction definitely looked like he thought that Mike Evans ran the wrong route. Either way, there was some miscommunication on that one. It wasn't necessarily all on him. It wasn't as bad as his pick six, which was just a horrible, horrible decision on his part. But it happens. Now, Tampa just had a tough time stringing drives together. And the not being on the same page started to come back to bite them. Uh, there was no preseason. It's a brand new team playing one of the best teams in the league. Now, I did think the Bucs would win, and I was wrong about that. But while it was an overall rough performance, Brady and the Bucs did some good things. He had some good passes. There was some good uh, chemistry building. Um, we saw Ronald Jones, who didn't necessarily have a huge day. He was pretty decent within the Bucs' offense. I did not think Brady looked bad at all. I thought he looked good. I think we will see the adjustments in week two versus the Panthers. Brady has continuously and consistently shown us the ability to adjust after a bad week and usually look pretty damn good. Now, this is a big game for the Bucks this weekend against the Panthers because it's another divisional game and they cannot afford to start 0-2 in their division. Now, but contact, context was everything with this game. And I wanted, and I watched every snap. And the Bucks, they're fine. They are. 
I still expect a 10-6 record in Tampa Bay this season. I understand that Pats fans could not wait to bash Brady, but it's beyond premature for that. Week one overreactions drive me so crazy because you can't tell how a team's season is going to go based off of week one. That's why I'm giving the Browns some time like I talked earlier in this episode. This isn't just they looked bad week one, so they're going to look bad all year. They played the Saints. The Buccaneers played the New Orleans Saints, a team that has not had a lot of turnover. They're used to each other, and they've been one of the best teams in the league for the past three, four, maybe even five years. I just think that bashing Brady now, especially if you're a Patriots fan, you're making fun of the same mistake that you used to make fun of other people for making. You're bashing Tom Brady way, way too early. Shifting back to an NBA topic, the Los Angeles Lakers will play the Denver Nuggets in the Western Conference Finals now. And, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting that the Nuggets were able to battle their way back from a Utah Jazz 3-1 lead. And then they battled their way back from a 3-1 Clippers lead. And ultimately ended up winning both series. They showed a tremendous ability to battle back from deficits, as in when the other team takes a lead, even a big lead, the Nuggets have shown the ability to battle their way back. And they do rely very heavily on Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic, but they are a fairly deep team and they are a team that's going to be able to at least switch and not have a crazy mismatch besides LeBron James. You cannot tell me that there is a player on the Nuggets that will even be able to slow down LeBron James, never mind give him a hard time. Now, this Nuggets team, they're a bunch of fighters. They've got a lot of guys who can score the basketball. But defensively, while Nikola Jokic is going to be out there, and he's a big, solid body, You also can't tell me you think that he's going to be able to lock up Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis is way more athletic. He's a guy who can shoot from anywhere in that mid-range area. He can also take it out to the three stretch the floor. Jokic is going to be going all over the place if he's guarding Anthony Davis. The Lakers, they're going to make it extremely hard matchup-wise on this Denver Nuggets team. But to me... This series is going to be about sending a very clear message. We are better than you. The Los Angeles Lakers have a chance to come out here, gentlemen sweep, even in six games, beat the Denver Nuggets and do it handedly. And it's going to send a clear message. We were more prepared and we're the better team. I understand that all year I've been yapping about how the Clippers were the better team. I was wrong. I was wrong. 
LeBron and the Lakers are going to come out in this upcoming series and they are going to send a message and they are going to put the Denver Nuggets away in five games. I'm going on the record with that. And it's going to be a very clear message when they have that 3-1 lead and they blow them out in game five. We weren't messing around this entire time. We haven't been acting like we won it this whole time. We haven't been in and out of the bubble. We haven't had guys be inconsistent. We are the better team. And we have the better duo. I wanted to believe all season that the Clippers had the better team because that's what it looked like on paper and that's what it looked like when they would go through their stretches and flip their switch that I talked about in last episode. But it's becoming very apparent that while the names might not be as flashy, while it doesn't seem as though they have as much depth, the Lakers were the better team all along and nobody wanted to believe it. Or that LeBron James is the greatest basketball player. That's tough. The Lakers should retire his jersey just because he put it on. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in and spending some time with us. Make sure to stay posted for new episodes and content. This show was recorded at Rhythm Room Studios in North Smithfield, Rhode Island by Nick Cloutier. Cloutier Productions, LLC.